0: Right today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for joining us. A reminder that this summer for our WDET book club, we are reading Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Published in 1952 and the winner of the National Book Award, this novel examines race and identity through a really thrilling story of a young, nameless black man who experiences america through racist brutality in the american south and the american north it is one of my favorite novels and one of the things that i think will help us really understand this moment that we are experiencing in this country and in this city uh, throughout the summer detroit today is going to examine the issues and the concepts of this uh, this novel and we are going to talk about of course how they relate to 2020, as well as the time that Ellison wrote the novel in. You can also take part in ongoing conversations at the WDET Book Club Facebook page, which I have to say, I have been really impressed since we announced last week that we were reading Invisible Man, Uh, just how many people have decided to join that Facebook book club. We have about 400 members right now, so that will be A pretty robust conversation this summer. You can also, uh, of course, participate here when we are uh, talking about this book with guests who will talk about the literary aspects of it, the social aspects. We've got a lot planned. So uh, go to the Facebook page and join the book club, and uh, we will get started next week after the 4th of July holiday. Up first today, yesterday, the United States Supreme Court handed down a significant ruling On abortion. The decision was centered on a case, June Medical Services versus Russo, which challenged a Louisiana law that required abortion providers to have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. Here to talk through the details and the importance of the case is somebody who pays a lot of attention to these issues. Dahlia Lithwick writes about the courts and the law for Slate. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, so let's start by looking at the case itself, June Medical Services versus Russo. For people who aren't familiar with us, with this case, uh, tell us a little about it.
1: Sure. Uh, the state of Louisiana uh, enacted a statute that required that any abortion provider have what's called admitting privileges at a hospital within. 30 miles of the clinic where they uh, perform those services. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly the same thing that Texas had done a few years earlier, where uh, in a big, big case, it was challenged uh, and went all the way to the Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court in 2016 said, you know what? these admitting privileges sound like a good idea, but here's the problem. They have no real effect on women's health. Uh, Doctors usually cannot get them because abortions are so safe that doctors uh, are not granted admitting privileges at uh, hospitals. They don't bring in enough patients. Some hospitals refused to give physicians admitting privileges if they perform abortions so the Supreme Court had struck down that exact law I mean it is virtually identical mm-hmm. and Louisiana pushed ahead and said our admitting privileges law is different and that's what they um, was heard at the US
0: Supreme Court and uh, this this constant sort of pushing in this regard in these in these areas this is I feel like this is where the battlefield uh, over abortion kind of lies right now. You've got states that are consistently trying to find ways to make it not illegal to get an abortion, but really difficult to get an abortion, especially in states that have big rural areas uh, that don't have the same kinds of dense medical services uh, as others. This was this was a sort of uh, trying uh, case of Louisiana saying, "Well, maybe if we do it this way, we can we can get this done."
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that in some ways, this response uh, as a way to we're not going to outright make abortion illegal we're just going to put clinics out of service we're going to enact regulations these are called trap laws um, targeted restriction of abortion providers trap and it's been almost since 1992 when the u.s supreme court famously decided the casey case planned parenthood versus casey and that was a case that in theory Stephen reinforced the court holding of roe but had the effect of saying If a state does not put a, quote-unquote, undue burden on a woman seeking to terminate a pregnancy, they can enact all the regulations they want. And that kind of created two problems. One was nobody ever knew what an undue burden was. It was some kind of uh, fantastical idea that Sandra Day O'Connor had, but nobody knows what that line is. But I think you're exactly right as to the second point, which is it meant that as long as states were saying we're just doing you know the, our best to educate women, we want them to make better choices, we want them to be safe, all of those kinds of regulations were considered constitutional, and so for. A very, very long time after Casey, we had states not criminalizing abortion, not putting doctors in jail or women in jail, but just saying, look, you know, we're not asking a lot. We just want you to widen the corridors so that two gurneys can pass each other. We're not asking a lot. We just want you to, you know, put, put uh, uh, HVAC systems uh, into your uh, uh, places where even non-surgical abortions are... Um, Performed and so in the aggregate, all of these laws that were passed, really unbelievable amounts of these kinds of regulations were passed. They seem to survive scrutiny because they purported to be just regulating medical procedures in women's health. And so, what Whole Women's Health did in 2016, for the first time five justices, Anthony Kennedy was the fifth, mm-hmm. said, look, you can't just create regulations saying you're advancing maternal health if all you're doing is closing down clinics. And that was where the law stood. Mm.
0: So I, I want to talk about the opinions that uh, that were issued in this case, and, and I'm going to start with the Chief Justice, John Roberts, who was on the dissenting side in the Texas case and then in this case casts the tie-breaking vote to become part of the majority of course he joins part of the majority not the full not the full opinion but but talk about his journey here from 2016 to to 2020 on this issue
1: yeah this is the fascinating aspect you know in 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 2016, he sides with the dissenters, and he has always uh, been uh, for a more abortion regulation. Mm -hmm. So the opinion we get yesterday is this really weird 4-4-1 opinion, where we have the four liberal justices in an opinion written by Stephen Breyer saying looks exactly the same as the law that was passed in Texas that was struck down, and Breyer sort of meticulously relitigates, you know, why these particular doctors were denied admitting privileges, and it would have the effect of shutting two of the three clinics in Louisiana down, case closed. And then you're quite right, Robert's says overtly, look, I joined the dissent in Whole Women's Health. I continue to think that case was wrongly decided, but the only issue for him today is whether Whole Women's Health is the law. And in his view, and this is where he talks a lot about stare decisis, Mm -hmm. which is the fancy Latin word for precedent, he basically says, don't go around overruling Supreme Court decisions from four years ago, people, and talks a lot about how The country and the world needs the stability of knowing that you're not going to willy-nilly upset a four-year-old precedent just because the composition of the court is different. And so he's really clear that only because this case is virtually identical to the Texas case, there's no way that the ruling should be different just because Kennedy has left and Kavanaugh is on the court. And it's a really, as you say, very narrow opinion, only saying... If somebody's going to go around overruling a Supreme Court decision, it's going to be the Supreme Court, not the Fifth Circuit, and not the state of Louisiana. Yeah,
0: and and that is a direct, I guess, rebuttal of sorts to the conservative court strategy. I think uh, the 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 um, the whole idea of trying to replace uh, the justices who retire or otherwise have to leave the bench. Um, Uh, with with more conservative justices is to get them to reconsider these kinds of opinions. And and the idea that uh, someone like Brett Kavanaugh would replace Anthony Kennedy, uh, I think the expectation was that you would get different outcomes specifically on cases like these, uh, abortion cases, uh, other really kind of red meat issues for uh, conservative political activists uh, Roberts was when he was nominated uh, somebody who I, I remember conservatives not being quite sure how he would play that. He's saying, "Look, that's not the way I see. That's not the way I see the court. That's not the role I see for the court." And so uh, it seems to me this is uh, got to be a very bitter disappointment for uh, for activists who want the court to really revisit these kinds of things.
1: I mean, I think just to be plain about it, Donald Trump ran for office in 2016 with the pledge that he was going to seat justices who would, his word was, automatically reverse Roe v. Wade. I don't know that he even wanted them to wait for litigation. Mm -hmm. I think he thought they could just, you know, get sworn in and do it. So he had made a promise. Uh, It was rewarded, right? Evangelicals broke for him in big, big ways because he promised that Roe would be overturned. He had in four years in office, an unprecedented uh, ability to seat two justices, Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. So this was supposed to be the litmus test of that pledge, that there is a five justice conservative majority on the court. Roberts is a lifelong abortion opponent. This would have been a slam dunk. And I think you're exactly right to say that in some sense if you just look at their voting records that's what should have happened but i think what roberts was saying was kind of twofold one was look The law isn't what five justices at any given moment say the law is. The law is, you know, a canon of 200 years of precedent, and that has to mean something. And a change in the composition of the court doesn't mean that the law changes immediately. And I think he was also sort of making this point about, don't do this recklessly. Don't do this badly. I I want to end row as much as you do, but not this way. And I think that's a big piece of, if I see a through line through some of um, the cases this year and last, where uh, Roberts has surprised us and thrown in with the liberal wing, time and again, what he's saying is, don't bring me C-minus work. And ask me to change the world. Give me A-plus work and I will effectuate this conservative program, but not with shoddy lawyering. And in this case, Louisiana didn't even try to distinguish this from Texas. They seemed to just want to cash in on the fact that they could count to five. Yeah.
0: Um, I'm talking with Daya Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Uh, We're talking about yesterday's Supreme Court ruling in in an abortion case out of Louisiana uh, that attracted the support of Chief Justice John Roberts, someone who is not thrilled with the Roe v Wade decision from 1973 that uh, legalized abortion or prevents states from uh, making it illegal uh, but he doesn't think that uh, this case or the what the the, the statute in Louisiana, uh, that was restricting abortion uh, is the way to deal with that uh, that decision, as well as a decision from four years ago, uh, in a very similar case out of Texas. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us if you're surprised by yesterday's decision to strike down this uh, anti-abortion law in Louisiana. Also, tell us if you're surprised about the fact that just about all of the major decisions late in the term here have gone the way that liberal uh, supporters of uh, causes at the court would want them to do. Um, have these decisions in any way changed your perceptions of this court? Uh, do they change the way you think about the relationship between the court and the other branches of government? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313 577 one oh one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, dahlia I want to ask you about these the string of decisions. Uh, we've talked to you a couple times over the last couple of weeks, and each time, it's been because we're a little surprised by <laughs> by the decision that uh, that comes out of the court, uh, the DACA ruling. Uh, for instance, and the uh, ruling about the Civil Rights Act and whether it could protect uh, LGBTQ Americans from uh, from sex discrimination. Uh, what is going on at the court, and how should people be interpreting that looking forward uh, to the end of this term and to next term? Uh, again, I think
1: that, well, I, I would say one thing, which is I like, think you know, it's important to uh, look at all of the cases. And so I think there've been a few surprises, but I think we can say that other than these big ticket cases that we've just talked about, you know, DACA, which is the Dreamers and the rescission of of DACA and and the Title VII uh, cases that would have denied uh, civil rights protections to LGBTQ workers, those were surprises. Uh, In some sense, the big surprise was Neil Gorsuch, uh, who Mm -hmm. actually joined the Chief Justice uh, uh, to defect uh, on one of those cases. But I think all of the other cases have gone exactly as expected, Mm -hmm. uh, including a big one yesterday about um, agencies and uh, executive power. So I think that, I and it's been a very term for conservative causes, but you are absolutely right on these hot button sort of social issues, the kinds of things that garner a lot of tension. We have not seen uh, the kind of triumph of the the conservative five that people were expecting. And I think it's worth saying these were all losses, by the way, for the Bill Barr Justice Department, Mm -hmm. which was on the losing side of each of those cases. And I think my short answer is sort of what I just gave, which is I think John Roberts is such a careful steward of the court. I think he sees his role as chief justice Not to tack wildly from left to right, but to try to steer a middle course, keep the Supreme Court out of the headlines, out of the election, as best as possible to turn the temperature down in a really politicized age. And I think Some of these places where he flips and he joins the liberals are places where he's more or less saying, not now. Come back in five years when things are calmer. I'm going to be on this court for 20 years. Uh, We're going to do all the things. But let's not do it right now, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a huge racial justice crisis, while Donald Trump is president. And I think he's just done a really deft job of trying to depoliticize the court in an age where it could be the most political of all the institutions Mm,
0: yeah and we have some big cases still coming uh, this week in fact uh, the, the justices will rule on on the president's taxes and some other issues what are we what are we expecting there
1: Yeah, we're in a funny situation because in any ordinary year, today would be the very last day of the term, and we get the last two or three big cases, (laughs) but there's still 10 uh, pending cases. So I think there is some reason to believe that the term will extend on into July. Um, But you're quite right. A lot of the big stuff is yet to come. We have those two financial documents cases. One is a a subpoena uh, in New York, a grand jury subpoena to get Trump's financial records. The other... Um, case that that was heard together with that is the uh, House committee that wants to see uh, Trump's financial record. So those two cases, I think, are the big, big ones that are still to come. But we have uh, the Little Sisters of the Poor. This is a question about whether religious entities can opt out of the contraception mandate. Mm -hmm. We have a whole bunch of religious liberty challenges, including how Colorado finances uh, schools and whether uh, people who are deemed ministers uh, can be fired from religious entities, and the stateless electors case about what happens when states have an elector who doesn't want to do uh, what they're meant to do in the election. So huge, huge uh, bunch of cases coming down the pike. And again, I think all of it gets a little bit numbed out because of the news from the White House, but this is, I think, the biggest term I've ever covered. Yeah,
0: yeah. Okay, Dahlia Lithwick, uh, reporter for Slate, covers the courts and the law. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks very much for being with us.
1: So good to be here. Thank you.
0: All right, up next, we're going to take a look at qualified immunity, what it is and how it relates to the conversations around police reform in this moment. Stay with us on Detroit Today.